0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Andrew Quilty is an Australian photographer whose photojournalism has won distinguished prizes and has been published all over the world. For most of the last decade, Andrew's been living in Afghanistan, in the capital, Kabul, and he loves the place dearly. He loves it for its startling beauty and its rawness and for the sense of mission it's given him as a photographer to tell a bigger and truer story of the country than the endless shots of tanks charging through dust and gravel that we're all used to. In August 2021, Andrew left Afghanistan briefly to attend a friend's wedding in France. But then it suddenly became clear that the government in Kabul was about to fall to the Taliban. And so Andrew came rushing back to Kabul, just at the moment when so many people were desperate to flee the country. Andrew Guilty's written a book about the last days of the Afghan national government called August in Kabul. Hello, Andrew. Welcome.
0: Thank you for having me, Richard. What brought you to
1: Afghanistan to
0: begin with? Late 2013, I went there with a, a friend with whom I'd worked at Fairfax, where I started my photography career. She wanted to go to Afghanistan to write a story about the Afghan cricket team who were preparing for their first World Cup tournament to be held in Australia the next year, and um, Claire asked me if I knew any photographers in Afghanistan that she could work on this story with. And without really thinking much about it, I I volunteered. I said, I'll come. And so we went for what was supposed to be a two-week trip. Because of logistical hurdles and things, we, we ended up pushing it out to a, a month. And then after a month, we'd completed that story and we're enjoying ourselves. and we And we stayed on another month and then another month until our tourist visas expired. And by the end of that time... I had really fallen in love with the place and decided that I wanted to uh, move from where I'd been living at the time in New York to Kabul.
1: I think it is funny how you can fall in love with a place and in a way that's really not that different with falling in love with a person. You can send, you can actually fall head over heels for a place and it sounds like you fell for
0: Kabul. What was it about Kabul that really made you go, oh, I love it here? Yeah, it's an interesting analogy and, and I think it can be as hard to define it's kind of ineffable what do you need from it when you're away from it I think that developed over the years and what did develop was a, a real sense of purpose there in the early days I think while I was discovering that sense of purpose it was it was finding a real a real use for my the, the skills that I had as a photographer where uh, previously I had always I'd loved the process of photography I'd loved composing elements from the real world into concise frame and uh, composing it in a aesthetically beautiful way, but I'd never found meaning in photography or in in photographs the way I had in Afghanistan. You mean like the meaning to tell a story of what's something that's profound that's going on right in front of your eyes? Yeah, and not only what's happening right in front of your your eyes, but what's happening beyond the realms of the the frame and what's what's happened before that moment. And in Afghanistan, I found that unlike anywhere else I'd been, the people who I was photographing had these stories that spoke to me in the moment, in, the, in that very discreet moment that a photograph can capture. But in another sense, the photograph wasn't enough to tell that story because there was so much that was happening outside the bounds of the, the frame and which needed to be told in words to, to describe what was happening beyond the, the bounds of the frame. When you go out and about in. The baton,
1: an Australian city and you want to take someone's photographs as a a photographer. You need to ask permission, of course, as you would anywhere else, but I think there'd be a lot of questions. You go, where's this going? Where are you going to post it? What are you going to do with it? We're really media conscious. Is it different in Afghanistan when you want to take someone's
0: photo? Very much so, And and that was another point that was appealing to me. The way they stared at the camera was unlike you would see it here or in any um, western country. They like, like how? Like how? They're staring straight through the camera right. as if it wasn't there, as if they were looking at something off in the mid-distance. And they weren't reacting to the camera as we are culturally inured to do nowadays. Why did you decide to stay? What made you want to actually live there and rent a place? Was there something
1: about the life itself there as opposed to the photography that you liked?
0: I, I was very surprised by the life that someone like me could live in a place like Kabul, which before I Went, I expected to be, I expected was a war zone because that's what we hear of it from from afar. Broken pipes, no running water, no electricity, that sort of thing. How different but, was the reality of that though? I mean, it, it is all that as well. And, you know, we spent many winters with frozen pipes and no heating and maybe an hour of electricity a day. But I don't know, there, there was something that was all part of it. And it was working by candlelight or a, a single naked solar bulb or, um, you know, plugging a computer into the a solar charger, firing up the diesel generator. It was never enough to dissuade me from being there. And, and people would, when I would come home, people would say, oh, it's, yeah, it's amazing the sacrifices you're, you're making to tell the stories of Afghans. And I never felt like it was a sacrifice. I, I loved living there. Could you be doing something like, I don't know, chopping the veggies for dinner and hearing... Distant
1: gunfire or some distant explosion.
0: Yeah, there were times where that was quite common. Gunfire in Kabul was was less common. I mean, Kabul was not a city that was at war. It was a city that was at the centre of of a war and which experienced isolated moments of extreme violence. But it wasn't. It wasn't a place where you left the house in the morning and you, you know, had to consider crossing front lines or dodging bullets. These things would happen sporadically. Unexpectedly, and they would interrupt the flow of the day for the city, and I would stop what I was doing. And depending on the proximity, or depending on how close I thought the bomb, the sound of a bomb, for example, was, or how big it was, I would choose to try to get there or, or, or not. But the intrusion of war in Kabul was somehow manageable. You could live alongside it. It was there, but it wasn't all consuming. You were awarded the Gold
1: Walkley for an extraordinary photo you took of a body on an operating table in a hospital that was almost entirely destroyed.
0: Tell me the story of how you came to take that photo. That was late in September in 2015 and the Taliban had taken control of the first capital city since the beginning of the war in, in 2001. And when the Afghan National security forces, with the help of American um, special forces, conducted operations to retake the city, city of Kunduz in, in the north of Afghanistan. They attacked a, a hospital which was run by Doctors Without Borders, which was the, the main trauma hospital for victims of the war in the, in the north of the country, and you know treating thousands of victims of the war. And an American warplane destroyed the hospital.
1: Why was the hospital a target?
0: It's unclear why they targeted the hospital. Their, their reasoning was that they believed it was a it was being used by the Taliban as a command and control center inside the city that they had taken control of. Doctors Without Borders deny that and I believe I believe them. Regardless of why it happened, the end result was that this warplane circled the hospital for over an hour, firing hundreds of high explosive rounds into the hospital and completely leveling it and killing all those people inside. And you heard about this? Yeah. So I was in Kabul at the time and, and it was a big news story, I suppose, that the Taliban overrunning the first provincial capital in 15 years. And so I started making inquiries into trying to get to Kunduz. This was before the hospital was was destroyed. I wanted to try and get to Kunduz with the Afghan security forces as they were trying to retake this city. And so in between making those arrangements and getting to Kunduz, the hospital was destroyed. And as soon as I heard that that had happened, that became the focus of my attention and and my efforts to get to Kunduz narrowed to not only getting to the city, but getting to this hospital and to, to see what had happened. How did you get out there? Well, I, I flew out of Kabul with a another colleague of mine. We flew in a commercial airliner to a, a neighbouring city that was still open to air traffic. And from there, we took the, the official papers we had from the Ministry of Defence to a, a military base where we spent the next two days waiting for a helicopter transport to Kunduz. In the end, th- there were so many helicopters coming and going, delivering the wounded out of Kunduz and food and ammunition into Kunduz that... You know, many helicopters came and went before we could get on one. The one we f- were eventually allowed onto was was full of a number of wounded soldiers and a couple of dead soldiers. And there was so little room on the helicopter that we ended up having nowhere to sit but on top of the, the coffins of of dead Afghan soldiers. And what happened when you got to Kunduz? When we arrived in Kunduz, we, we were handed over to a, an Afghan public affairs official with the army who was very keen to not let us out of his, not only not out of his sights, but um, out of the, the military base. So we spent a week trying to negotiate getting out of the base and, and into the city to see what had happened. Eventually we we were taken by a, a sympathetic, I think he was a captain who was leaving for a clearing mission and he offered for us to jump in with him. And so without without thinking and without asking the permission of our public affairs officer we, we jumped in with him and spent the day as, as he and his men were corralling these these Taliban fighters into this pocket of the city. and then late in the day I was in communication with the doctors with Our Borders team in in Kabul who who knew I was there. They hadn't had anyone uh, inside the hospital themselves. They weren't aware of of the state of the hospital or a number of their staff who were still unaccounted for, let alone their patients. And so they had an interest in helping, in facilitating me getting to the hospital. So um, they ended up sending a taxi for me and I absconded from the army unit that I was with and linked up with this taxi driver who drove me into the city while there was still fighting going on inside the city and a man who was staying inside the hospital, just basically a, a night watchman opened the door for me and and let me in. He hadn't even been inside the hospital yet. Was it still standing? Part of it still standing? What had happened to it? The walls were all still standing. The basic structure was still there, but the roof had all caved in and and, um, everything inside was was burnt and and melted and more or less unrecognisable. And how did you come up on that figure on the operating table? When I arrived at the hospital, I was very conscious at the time. I wanted to get out of there before dark set in. Um, so I said, I'll give myself 15 minutes in here to photograph as much as I could. And, and it quickly became apparent that that wasn't going to be enough time. I, I I tried to very forensically document every room inside the hospital that that I could. Um, I would go into each room, stand in the middle and, um, and, and, and pivot in the middle, taking a photograph at, you know, every 90 degrees. And, it took me about an hour to do that um, to cover most of the hospital. And before I left, I I saw there was this one wing that didn't look as damaged, but which I thought, well, I should I should have a look anyway. And so I, I pushed through this door. It hadn't been torched the way the the other wings of the hospital had been. It was the operating theatre, and so you could still see there was a lot of um, equipment that was recognisable as. MRI machines and operating tables and things. And again, I just went into each room documenting what was left and the destruction and the, you know, there was some pockmarks on the wall from these huge rounds that had been fired and holes in the roof um, from the, the larger rounds that had come through. And um, the last room I got to was one of several operating theatres and, and on one of the operating tables was, was a man who had clearly been killed while being operated on his body was still mostly intact he was strapped by his arms to the table almost Christ-like and he had the the, the steel uh, exoskeleton brace on his leg which I later found out he was in to have removed and and sewn up and he he was um, yeah he, he was one of the the 42 who perished there
1: how long had he been lying dead
0: on that table more than a week. What had happened to him? Did you find out? He'd been admitted a few days earlier while he while he was on his way to check on the, the place where he worked as a security guard. One morning he was caught in crossfire and he was shot through the leg. He was delivered to the hospital and um, the bullet was removed and he had some basic surgery and um, was in recovery. And then on the day that he was operated on, the the plan was just to suture up his wound and he w- it was expected that he would be released the following day. He obviously wasn't and his family, who I later met, after they had heard about what happened at the hospital and without having seen him emerge from the hospital, embarked on this search for him in, in hospitals across the north of the country, a 10-hour drive down to Kabul, in the hope that they would find him alive with some of the other patients who had survived and who were being treated elsewhere. So can we then assume that the doctors were operating on him and
1: the bomb landed caving in the roof and everyone just had to flee? Was he under general anaesthetic or was he, or, or was he, would he have been awake at the time?
0: I actually spoke to some of the surgeons who were working on him at the time and obviously it's a a huge burden of guilt uh, Lays on them still, but they told me yes, he was under general anaesthetic, and he was a big man. He was he was probably ninety to hundred kilos, uh, and, and an anaesthetised body is, as you can imagine, incredibly difficult oh, to
1: move. Mid operation too. Mid
0: operation, he was he had open wounds, um, so he went to sleep and and never woke up. Never woke up, and I think the barrage from this American warplane was so intense that there was nothing they could do in those moments. Everyone was you know, running for cover and, and bringing this fully grown human with them was just impossible at the time. Having photographed such things and other such things, do you see
1: the human body differently now than you did before you went to Afghanistan? Having seen bodies that are bloodied and opened like that, we don't often see what really lies
0: under the skin of us most of the time. Do you see the human body differently? It's a very interesting question. I, I spent a lot of time in hospitals and, and I suppose I was in equal parts amazed by how, on the one hand, fragile the human body is and, and how easily it can be torn apart by the smallest ballistic object. You know, what, what a one and a half inch long bullet from a Kalashnikov can do to a, the human body is unthinkable. I mean, the, the physical fragility of the, of the human body and, and then on the other hand, its resilience. I mean, what the human body can endure is, is also incredible. I mean, I've seen men come into hospital who have been with, with a bullet that has entered in their temple, gone behind their eye and then come out their nose and they're living and breathing and, and in a lot of pain but fully conscious and fully aware of the, of the extreme pain they're in. It's a funny thing to ask, but do
1: you need to go and have a cry for a while after you see these terrible things?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um I mean, yeah, I know so. It's something that the the very tight-knit community in Kabul, um particularly other other journalists and the Afghan colleagues we worked with and experienced these things with can understand and with whom we can talk about and relieve these things and try to process them it's very difficult to try to relate those experiences to people who who were not there and i i can i can certainly sympathize with soldiers and and military veterans who come come home after seeing and experiencing and partaking in these things not being able to relate those experiences to people who have, who have not. So August 2021, you ducked out to
1: attend a friend's wedding in, in France, and then it sort of became apparent that the national government was about to collapse. Why did you decide to go back to Kabul at that moment, at the, when everyone's trying to get out, and you're identifiably a foreign journalist who might not be welcomed by the Taliban, whose presence might not be welcome at all? Why did you nonetheless decide to go back at that moment when everyone else is trying to flee the country?
0: First of all, it, it wasn't so much the Taliban that I was worried about, that that was the main source of concern or or, the, or or that posed the most risk to me as a foreigner and as a as a journalist. My assessment was that if the Taliban did take over, that the way that we had been viewed by them up until that point would change the instant that they took over. How so? The dynamics of conflict depend very much on who is in control in the instance of an insurgent war or a, an insurgency where, aside from very rare circumstances, the journalists who are able to live and work usually do so in areas that are under control of the official government, the internationally sanctioned government as we were in Kabul, which also meant that it was only on very rare occasions and only towards the very end of the war that we were able to report from the other side of the war um, with the Taliban. So we had always been viewed more or less as the enemy, as complicit with the invaders, as living under the protection of the government and therefore as legitimate targets. Yeah, so it doesn't sound good for you. <laughs> no, but having said that, my view was that once the Taliban, if they did take power, that we would be treated as we had been, more or less, by the government that had been in power up until that point. The The biggest risk for me, and for certainly for foreign journalists, I thought was the interim period between when the, the former government held power and when the Taliban took over power, um, like a, a, a period of security vacuum where there was lawlessness, there was no... Um, the police and the armed forces had collapsed. You so, know, like, civil war in the streets would have been very dangerous for you,
1: but once the Taliban was in the presidential palace... And had put Kabul under their, under their control, then it wouldn 't be so dangerous for you then they 'd have a story they 'd want to tell to the world, and you could help them with that in their mind
0: exactly and there was there would have been no reason for them, certainly in the early days, to have jeopardized their standing in the in the view of the world. I suppose um, the, the other risk, as you just pointed to there was which could have happened if the Afghan government had decided to try to defend the capital which could have resulted in you know, a return to the, the 1990s, a civil, civil war in Kabul with the Taliban shelling from the outside and the government trying to maintain front lines on the perimeter. As it happened in the end, the government collapsed in a matter of hours. The security forces literally shed their uniforms. I, I saw them doing this myself, uh, sh- shedding their uniforms on the street. A lot of them had gone to work that day wearing traditional clothing underneath their uniforms, I presume uh, in anticipation of this happening and and so that once it got to a point where being seen as affiliated with the then still the government would pose a risk to them, so they stripped their uniforms off, dropped them where they laid and and walked home. So this is what you're seeing once you got back into Kabul. You're seeing people change clothes
1: as the Taliban are approaching Kabul.
0: Yeah, I, I arrived the day before the Taliban arrived Inside Kabul. So this and this all happened on that day, August 15, and it happened within a, a matter of hours. You, you had early that morning, it became apparent that the Taliban were poised at every gate around around the capital. There were four or five main gates le- leading out to the provinces, and they were there, poised, waiting to to enter, waiting for orders from their their senior leadership, who at that point had ordered them to stay there, in the hope that a political settlement could be reached in an effort to avoid a battle for the city.
1: I remember in the weeks leading up to that takeover, I think there was a view that had taken hold that the Taliban were likely to be more conciliatory. They were going to reach out and act in a more moderate way than they'd had when they'd held government 20, 25 years earlier, that they were going to reach out and not conduct persecutions of friends of the the previous regime. Did you believe that at the
0: time? I wanted to believe it. The Taliban were very careful with their words and I think what they didn't tell the world at the time was enough for certainly the Americans who had reached a point in the war where they they wanted to leave. They'd had enough. So they left a space for wishful thinking, in other words, did they? Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I, I wanted to believe it as well. I thought, well, this war has been going on for 20 years, perhaps... Even if Afghanistan ends up being under the control of the Taliban, it also means the end of war. Surely there's there's some benefit there. And, yeah, it, it was a exercise in, in wishful thinking for me as well. Who are the Taliban today?
1: Are they the same people as they were running the country 25 years ago or are they different people?
0: The leadership is, by and large, made up of the core Taliban group that that emerged 25 years ago and they are the ones who hold the most sway to this day and who are mostly responsible for imposing this this very conservative worldview and imposing all the restrictions on, particularly on women in public, women in the workplace and so on, that we're all familiar with. So the leadership's the same and they haven't changed their spots.
1: They've still got the same theocratic totalitarian ideas about how to run, how Afghanistan should be run. Very much so. What about the soldiers themselves? They look like young men. They would have been, some of them would not have even been born when the US and its allies invaded Afghanistan 20 years ago. You're
0: right. And, as has been the case in, in recent years, some of the American soldiers who were coming in 2018, 1920 had not been born in, in 2001 when America first invaded. That's how long the war's been. That's, it's America's longest war. It's the longest war
1: Australia's ever been involved in too. That's extraordinary. So who are these young men who have decided
0: to sign up for the Taliban? Well, it's a voluntary force like our military, like most modern Western militaries. Their reasons for joining are probably more ideological, and, you know, this is a, a huge generalisation, than those who are signing up in for the ADF or the American Marines. Um, there are obviously many exceptions to that. Do they
1: think they're building heaven on
0: earth? Do they think they're building... Is it,
1: is it like that kind of utopian struggle in their minds, by and large? I know we're speaking really general, we're generalising, but by and large, do you get the sense, are they sort of crude opportunists who want to sort of go and loot Kabul, or are they, or are they more idealistic soldiers who want to build an Islamist heaven on earth?
0: In my experience, they're very idealistic. They're not opportunists. They're generally speaking, very disciplined. And I think this comes from their upbringing in um, religious madrassas. Are they from the country mostly? Mostly, yes. I mean, the, the Taliban was born in rural southern Afghanistan, and most of their recruits over the past 20 years came from those rural areas because by and large, that, that's where the war was fought. That's where... Most Afghans suffered as a result of the war, and it's where, as a result, a lot of young men signed up because of that suffering, because of what they had seen their their families and their their villages and their communities go through at the hands of American and international forces and then later Afghan forces. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Andrew, I remember President George W. Bush saying way back when that they weren't going into Afghanistan just to make the rubble bounce and there was President Obama as well during his term who declared a troop surge that he said would establish control over contested zones, this would bring stability, and they would build infrastructure, they create access to water, electricity, schools, education for women. If all that was the case, why would young men in Afghanistan still seek to join the Taliban?
0: I think that as much as the, the rhetoric that came out of the, the White House and from all the other members of the international community that were contributing troops and, and aid and development projects. Many Afghans, particularly Afghans in rural areas, saw it as an occupation. You mentioned the surge that, um, the troop surge, Obama's troop surge in the the middle of the war, 2009 through 2011, that involved a hundred thousand troops going into these rural areas, using extreme violence to clear them of Taliban, then bringing in government infrastructure and institutions and building a government from the from the ground up. So first of all, you had this this violence, which was necessary to facilitate the growth of a of a government.
1: Yeah, but how good were they at actually identifying real Taliban as opposed to civilians? I mean, how much of this, how much tit for tat was going on where local people would say, "Oh, that guy over there, oh him, yeah, he's Taliban. You better do something about him when he might want something from him, or paying off some kind of a grudge."
0: Was that a real thing? Yeah, there was a, a huge thing from the earliest days of the war. You had You know, not only, as you said, there were, of course, there were a number of Taliban fighters and leadership and Al-Qaeda affiliates who were rounded up, killed, shipped off to Guantanamo Bay, but there are also a lot of opportunists who saw this opportunity to point out, you know, business rivals or members of their community with whom they'd had um, family feuds and things. And so this was just another way that the Taliban were able to recruit. Um, They used... These false killings, these, these killings of people who were pointed out as Taliban, but maybe had nothing to do with them. And they would go and tap this victim's brother on the shoulder and say, are you going to stand for this or are you going to join us? And, and they used this very successfully. And they also brought in the, their you know, religious obligation to, to fight foreign invaders, especially foreign non-Muslim invaders. The Taliban were extremely effective at, at using the international military mission against them. So in August
1: 15, when the Taliban, you start to see them coming into Kabul, did you see them riding into the city itself?
0: I spent that day with a friend of mine, another photographer, you know, really just trying to stay abreast of what was happening in the city um, as much as residents, as journalists, and just trying to understand what was going on, who was where, who was in control, where late in the afternoon we went for a ride on my motorcycle just to really, you know, take the pulse of the city see what was happening and what was going on well it was it was in this period where no one was in control there was very little government security presence on the streets it was it was kind of like the eye of the storm there was this eerie silence on the streets um, a lot of people had gone home by this stage you know they'd gone home with their families and were bunkering down and you're seeing police and soldiers changing out of their uniforms
1: into traditional garb. Yep, changing out of their uniforms. I just wonder what effect that has on people. They're going, oh, well, that's it, isn't it, I suppose, yeah.
0: Yeah, it had a really cascading effect. As soon as one policeman shed his uniform, you know, his colleagues would do the same and then, I mean, it, it happened within a, a matter of hours They were, and they would, you know, ditch their army vehicles by the side of the road, leave the keys in them and just flee on foot, you know, jump into a taxi and as if... Nothing had ever happened as if they had never had anything to do with the the former government. You've got the story
1: in your book of a man named Hamid Safi who worked in the presidential palace as a kind of, I suppose, media advisor, is that how you'd call him? I suppose. Tell me what he told you about what was going on in the presidential palace
0: that day. Hamid Safi had turned up to work that morning despite a lot of his uh, friends and family and so on warning him against it. A lot of people knew or suspected what was to come that day or in the coming days and were staying home, staying close to their families or making preparations to try and leave if they could. Hammond Safi was used to going to work on days like this in the past where there had been huge explosions or security threats of some sort or another. So he, it wasn't such a big deal for him, but he, I mean, the first thing he noticed was when he was walking into the palace that, that, that morning was that there was a tide of people walking the opposite direction, which was very strange for that time of the day. And so it very quickly became apparent that things were unravelling. And so he started destroying documents, destroying any trace of himself and his, and his colleagues.
1: How was he doing that? Is it
0: burning papers
1: or is it smashing laptops? How was it going?
0: Uh, I think he was literally d- deleting files and folders on, on laptops, you know, taking his laptop with him, um, burning documents. And at one point he had given up all hope. He thought it's all over. He was told by security officials inside the palace to go home. They were suspecting that the Taliban were on their way to the palace and, and he is a civilian. There was no use for him to, to stay around. He should, he should prioritise his security. And so as he was making his way home, he got a call. The president's on his way to the Ministry of Defence. They want to you know, make a new plan to consolidate the remainder of the security forces and, and defend the city and he made his way to the ministry of defence in order to meet the president there and as they were there waiting for the president he saw three helicopters fly out of the palace he thought this is the president flying to the ministry of defence as as he sometimes did when security was particularly fragile but the helicopters flew in the opposite direction and when he called his boss to find out what was going on there was no answer when he called the head of the Uh, presidential protocol team, no answer. And it turned out that these were the helicopters carrying the president out of the country. So Hamid has
1: a whole family and he's very likely a target for an incoming Taliban regime. Tell me how he managed to get himself with his family to the airport.
0: He really didn't know to what extent he would be at risk from the Taliban. Um, no one really knew at that point. Um, as we said before, the, the Taliban had been very conciliatory in their rhetoric and they'd been offering amnesty to members of the security forces. Yeah, but fingers crossed isn't a terribly good gambit when you've got a family, is it? Exactly. Yeah. And so Safi started to, or had started in, in the days prior, to try and make a plan to leave. And so he started calling on all his American colleagues with whom he'd worked over the years who had trained him up in the palace um, media team. He'd been on a number of trips with the president outside the country, and so he had contacts with embassies in, in the US and in Europe and with his counterparts in the Department of State, for example, in the US. So he started calling these people and saying... Can you help me? And could the Americans help? And they did. And and it and these are these are individuals. These are not people really acting as part of a a bigger structure, or as or as even members of the Department of State. These were people who were connected both to someone in Afghanistan and with a a body in the US that could facilitate getting them out of there. So these
1: are all just informal contacts. It's not a
0: structured sort of absolutely our our
1: friends from the regime.
0: Absolutely. What happened when he got to the airport with his family? Well, so he had a visa because he had been making all these trips with the president, but no one in his family had visas. They they had passports, but no visas. So he was told by these informal contacts that they could guarantee him entry into the airport. They couldn't guarantee his family. His family, knowing that he was the one that was most at risk, wanted to prioritize him getting out even if it meant that they had to stay behind. They were saying you should go and we'll stay? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So right up until the moment that they arrived at the, the gate of the airport that they were told to get to by, by his contacts, Hamid Safi didn't know whether he was going to get in, in himself or whether he was going to be able to get inside with his entire family. And so there was a, a team of American Marines on the gates at that point and he was also there with his mother and father who had, um, who had visas as well. So he wanted to get make sure they were inside. Once he ensured that, he told the Marines, I also have my family outside, and much to his relief, this Marine asked him, why aren't they with you? And he said, they don't have visas. He said, bring them. And they pushed their way through this crowd, past a Taliban fighter who was guarding the outside of this gate and into the airport with the family. So they got out? They got out. Are you able to say where? They're in the US. Have you spoken to him since he got to the US? Yeah, I mean, I was speaking to him throughout this time. The the family spent, I think, about 50 days in a camp in the UAE before they were transferred to the US, where they then settled with um, some other relatives who'd been there for years prior. And, of course, they're safe, and it's great that they're safe. Are they nonetheless heart-sick to have had to leave? home? That's the thing. People see those who got out as the lucky ones. And I think it's very easy to forget that these are people who were forced to leave. They didn't want to leave. This was Afghanistan is their home and their identity. And it was where they had status in society. I mean, he he had a job. He saw the president on a daily basis and was working with foreign journalists like myself on a daily basis and and he had status and he had a purpose and now he is, he is there in the US. He is safe. His children are safe and they're, they're learning English and they're going to English speaking schools and they will have a wonderful life or they will have the opportunity to have a wonderful life. But it's, it's not a choice that he wanted to make. It seems like he was a true believer in the whole idea of
1: a Afghan national government or a non-Taliban government that you wouldn't it was by no means a perfect democracy what they had in Afghanistan it was this terrible corruption and everything else there but nonetheless it seemed like people in in Kabul had everything to fight for against the Taliban many of them particularly the older people would have been aware of what they stood to lose living under the Taliban and women in particular i wonder why there wasn't more of a concerted effort to stand and fight fight to the death because what they were
0: looking at was, for so many people, completely terrifying. Why didn't that happen? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's because that although a lot of people wanted that, they didn't necessarily, they didn't necessarily believe deeply enough that, it was, that it, it was yet ingrained in society, in culture. It was too fragile. The, the roots of this republic were still only inches beneath the surface. They hadn't had enough time to sink in and really embed themselves in the culture, and so there wasn't enough there wasn't enough belief in it. And I, I think that's what, in the end, and, and this comes down to corruption and, and all the and all the flaws and faults of, of the government that the security forces weren't willing to to fight for it because they didn't. Weren't willing to die for it. They certainly weren't willing to die for it. And, you know, and of course, the sad thing is that many tens of thousands did, but when push came to shove and the Taliban had reached a momentum that was almost impossible to, to push back, they realised it was a state built on sand, to use, use a, a title of a, of a book that was written about Afghanistan. The person in your book whose story really, really moved me was
1: a, a woman called Nadia. You met her after the fall of the government, didn't you? You met her when the Taliban had already come to power and were in the presidential palace. What were the circumstances in which you met Nadia?
0: It was about a week into this period, after August 15, when I met Nadia, I'd gone to the entrance to the French embassy and the French embassy at this point was still full of French citizens and others who were holding French visas and were waiting to be transferred to the airport. Now that the city was under the control of the Taliban, it was a very fraught situation, and so I, I went to the entrance to the embassy, or as close as I could get to it, where there were hundreds of people waiting outside in the hope of getting inside the French embassy and then to be transferred to the to the airport and out. I was trying to surreptitiously take some photos of, of this scene, and of course, the Taliban saw me and, and pulled me aside and, and sat me down and gave me a brief interrogation: "Who are you? What are you doing? Delete your photos." And once they left me, I jumped on my bike, put my helmet on, and I, I heard this small voice, excuse me. And it was this woman who would introduce herself to me as Nadia. She was a young woman who had been waiting outside the French embassy and, and had watched this exchange between me and the Taliban and had been herself surreptitiously filming it. And so she came to me and said, oh, I just saw what happened to you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry what happened. Um, I took this video. Do you want me to send it to you? That's pretty brave. Pretty brave. And, and I later found out she, she hadn't slept properly. She'd been sleeping on the street outside the embassy for three days at this point, trying to get in. And I was completely unaware of her circumstances beyond that. And she never asked for help. All she wanted to do was send me this video for, for whatever use I might find for it. And then a few days later, I got a call from a friend of hers who told me that Nadia herself was actually in... A lot of trouble,
1: what kind of trouble was she?
0: She was in trouble with her family, and it was tangentially the result of pressure that they were under from the Taliban. Her, her father and her brother had been members of the police, and the Taliban in her village had always wanted revenge against the family for this reason. So
1: her father was a target, and
0: her brother was a target her father and her brother were targets. Her brother left the country five years earlier, so he was no, they were no longer able to seek uh, revenge against him. And now the pressure was on the family because the the Taliban still, even though they weren't able to find her brother, who had been a a current member of the police, they still felt they were owed a debt by this family. And how
1: did that put pressure on Nadia though? What, What did she have to do with all that other than her father being a
0: target for the Taliban? So the family unthinkably came up with this plan that the only way that they could remove themselves from the Taliban's crosshairs was to offer them Nadia as a as a bride. A bride to to whom? To a Taliban fighter. What did she think of that idea? She was obviously horrified and scared. At the same time she she sympathized with the decision that her father had come to she realised he was under extreme pressure. They'd already been forced to leave the country twice before. Her father had sworn after the last time they'd left the country to Pakistan, living as refugees, that he would never do it again. That the lack of dignity that they lived with as refugees was was too much to bear. And it it was preferable for him to hand his daughter over? Yeah. I think they were almost trying to dehumanise her because they knew instinctively that what they were doing was, was wrong and they were trying to change the way that they perceived her as a commodity that would help them get out of trouble themselves rather than as a daughter and a, and a sister. And they, they beat her um, for her supposed insubordination. She made attempts to take her own life And when she did that because of scarring that was left, they tried to remove the scars by by burning them off her because any evidence of, of an attempted suicide in Afghanistan would be a mark against her in the eyes of the family of a potential groom. So what could be done to help Nadia? The only real option was for her to escape, to flee her family and not turn back. And fortunately, I was able to pass on her circumstances to a to a friend of mine who was in a position to be able to help and who ultimately did. Has Nadia been able to escape Afghanistan? She has.
1: Are you able to tell us how she's doing?
0: She is... I mean, Nadia is a constant source of inspiration for me. She has huge aspirations... She realises that she has an opportunity now outside of Afghanistan, which she would not have had under the Taliban. But that said, she had never lived outside of home for more than a day. She, in fact, she she slept in the same room as her mother until the age of 19. Now all of a sudden she is out in the world on her own. She's being looked after, but I mean, it's incredibly trying circumstances. And she of course misses her country and she certainly misses her mother. She has spoken to her father and forgiven him. She's forgiven her father for that. Yeah, it's in- incredible.
1: You know, Nadia wanted to be a businesswoman. She had the intelligence and ability to carry it off. So this whole kind of class of people have left Kabul now or, or, or are pretending to be people that they're not, people with, who, with basic competence at running the state, running a railroad, if you like, who know how to run a railroad. Now the Taliban have taken power, which is largely led and, and officered by by men who have no education or who've had only been educated in a madrasa or something got what they want. Now they have the state in their hands as they had back in the 1990s. Are they actually going to be able to run the kind
0: of theocracy that they want to run? So far, it's not looking good. I should just clarify one thing that I didn't get to talk about earlier when you asked about the makeup of the Taliban these days, a lot of the young fighters received tertiary educations. A lot of them, I was surprised to learn spoke English or spoke other languages. So they do have, a lot of them were educated overseas even. A lot of them were educated inside Kabul. Student by day, Taliban by night, or on the weekends, they would go back to their provinces on the weekends to fight. So they, they do would, have an educated class, caste They them? Defi- they certainly do. I think right. the majority of their foot soldiers are fairly uneducated. But ironically, they reap some of the, the rewards of the past 20 years of development and um, increase in literacy and numeracy and infant mortality and things that was bought by the Americans, you know, they, they, as they do now with all the equipment that the Americans left behind. Yeah,
1: and they use mobile phones and they uh, were using them for their own advantage in the battlefield as well. I suppose they're going to still have to deal with the crisis that the modernity, the modern world, keeps inflicting on people who want to go back, turn back to the, an imagined past from a thousand years ago or so when everything was simple, you could live the village life. Men would be in charge of everything and that would be that. They still got to grapple with all that, don't they? The intrusion of the modern world.
0: They do. And obviously they've used it to their advantage and they are using elements of the modern world that they can benefit from. The Taliban of 20 years ago certainly didn't have smart... Well, no one had a smartphone 20 years ago. Now they not only have smartphones, but they demand, you know, 5G internet but, you know, with that comes access
1: to pornography and all sorts of things like that. It's, it's hard to keep the modern world out, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and, and social media will play a role in enabling the population to demonstrate what is happening in their country. That didn't exist back in the 90s. And how about you? Each day, I am
1: suppose, while you're there in the during the fall of the Republic, you've got to figure out whether you're going to stay or go.
0: Every day, I'm imagining you're waking up and you're saying, is today the day? Was that how it was? In those early days after the Taliban came in on the 15th of August, I mean, on that day, I had booked two tickets out of the country. Just as backups, I wasn't necessarily adamant that I was going to use them, but I wanted to have them in case I needed them. And, but the day that it was the day, mm-hmm. why was that the day <laughs> when you had
1: to get out? What made you decide you had to go?
0: Well, the day that it was the day was by then things had calmed down a lot. The Americans had long since gone. The chaos at the airport... Was two months in the past. Things in Kabul were kind of—I um, mean, the Taliban were just starting to consolidate their control. Things were relatively calm in in Kabul, and I had spent the previous two months between August and October reporting for this book. And it got to the point where, yeah, it was time for me to leave and, and start writing. And it wasn't easy to come and go from the country. I ended up having to fly out with the with the UN, but it wasn't—I wasn't under any particular duress at that point. Can you go back and do you want to go back? I went back in May this year. I still had a valid visa. Uh, The Taliban was still accepting or honouring visas issued by the previous government. Will you get another visa? I deliberately let my visa lapse because I don't want to go back for for some time. Why not? I found last year, um, watching the The destruction of my community, I suppose, in in Kabul, very difficult to come to terms with. And when I went back in May, I really didn't recognise the city. All my friends and colleagues left. I I didn't feel at home there anymore. You know, we talked about falling in love with the place. The risk you take is that it breaks your heart. Are you a little heartbroken? Yeah, very much so. You know, it, it was the end of a an abusive relationship in a way. <laughs> but I was under the deluded belief that that would provide safety and comfort because Australia yeah. is a, a safe and comfortable place. And, no, I have, and hasn't it? It hasn't? Well, it has physically, but psychologically it's been quite the opposite. It made me realise that actually Kabul was my, it was my home. It's where I had a sense of purpose and where I literally had a, a physical home and I, I felt at home within it and within my community there. Did you need the war for that purpose? No, not necessarily. I think, um, I never considered myself a war photographer or a war correspondent. I saw myself as a photographer or a journalist living in a country that happened to be at war. Like you haven't gotten on a plane to Ukraine, for example. No. And I, I think that was an assumption that many people had that I would just skip from one conflict to another. And I, it never made any sense to me. My reason for going to Afghanistan was not the war. And so it wouldn't follow that I would try to replicate that in another place that was at all
1: well then it seems i don't know to me it should be down if i'm wrong here it just seems as a photographer since you always walk in with your eyes wide open you need to go to some find some other place that will create that sense of strangeness and otherness that you know really burns itself into your retinas once you go into that that foreign place
0: i think i'm trying to work out if that's what i need or whether i can can find that in a place that is more familiar like australia I haven't found it yet, and I'm dubious that I will, but I'm hoping some inspiration will will strike. I don't doubt for a second you will, or in many other
1: places as well.
0: It's been brilliant speaking with you, Andrew. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you, Richard.
1: Andrew Coulty's book is called August in Kabul. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.